Good morning and welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts with Brian Barnhart on News Talk 1400 WDWS. For over 60 years, East Central Illinois' daily gathering spot for conversation, dialogue, and ideas. You can join in on the phone, online, or via a text. Our phone number is 217-356-9397. Email talk at WDWS.com or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 217-351-5357. Now, here's Brian Barnhart. And good morning, everybody. Penny for your thoughts. News Talk 1400 DWS. Just a gorgeous Wednesday, September the 12th. Glad to be back with you again. 9.05 is our time. And as Michael mentioned, 61 degrees. Dry out there. So great weather for harvesting coming up as we get that underway here in central Illinois. Great to have you with us wherever you might be listening. And I know we have a lot of folks listening radio in their car, out and about, streaming both in the country and out, so we appreciate each and every one of you for being with us here today. Busy day yesterday, back at it today. We'll be busy tomorrow. Greg Solgate will join us tomorrow. We originally scheduled him for tomorrow. This was like a week ago, and then all of a sudden the hurricane pops up, and so that's going to be pretty timely, our staff meteorologist, tomorrow in the first hour. Today, though, we're going to talk about the future of democracy. How's that for a, a big topic, broad topic? couple of guests here uh, affiliated with the University of Illinois. Uh, Jim uh, Nolan, of course, a senior fellow at the Institute of Government and Public Affairs, well-known columnist in our state. And uh, he is here with us. Did I get all that right? Well, I am not technically a oh. senior fellow right now. I'm yeah. on an advisory committee. Okay, I well. great affection for the Institute. Well, oh, well, there you go. I'm just reading here what's here. But uh, they need to update that. <laughs> yeah. But it's great to have you with us. And, uh, of course, you've written columns for... Several years that appear in our paper here, right? Right, right. Yeah, and across the state. Brian Gaines is with us from over at the University of Illinois, professor of political science, right? That's correct. Did I, I get that I right? Actually still at the Institute of Government and Public Affairs as mm-hmm. well. So you're over there as well, and uh, good to have you two with us. And we've got a, uh, a broad topic today. The reason you're coming in here is because in October, early October, you are um, going to be at a, a seminar at uh, what Wesley United Methodist Church on the U of I campus. Tell us about that. You're putting it together, right? It's an equally broad uh, uh, remit. We're going to talk about the future of democracy. We have uh, two of us and and several others. My colleague Wendy Cho is going to talk about redistricting. She's been doing some of the -the state-of-the-art work on uh, using powerful computers to try to draw not just thousands but millions of of maps to compare to the existing map, get a better sense for Mm -hmm. what's fair, what's not fair, what's feasible. Um, And... um, I think we have. Uh, we're, we're, I think it's about. It's going to be about democracy in the United States, not worldwide. But we're going to try to talk about all the important subjects, and uh, we have maybe five panelists. Mm-hmm. Tom Eulen, I think, is going to be Tom over Eulen there. Tom from law school will yeah. be uh, organizing as well. We have a couple mm-hmm. of guys from the law school. Tom Ginsburg, who used to be at the law school here, is now at the University of Chicago. Will be involved. Um, Andy Leopold, I think. Yeah, it's quite an esteemed panel. So we'll have uh, two of the three in here today. We're going to touch on that uh, seminar a little bit, but also uh, talk some of the uh, bigger issues of the day, of course. Uh, there's uh, Electoral College. That was a big issue in the last uh, election, 2016. We've got uh, the future of democracy in our country itself, the state of Illinois. Uh, Jim Nolan, did I see you ran for uh, lieutenant governor at one point? Yes, I was the invisible Republican candidate for lieutenant governor in 1972. Yeah. Uh, governor Ogilvy. Uh, was the senior candidate uh, seeking re-election, and uh, we uh, lost by 70,000 votes out of 5 million, but there's no cigar for second place. (laughs) 
think so you didn't recount. Win. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that was uh, back in 1968. You also were uh, in the uh, state house, right, in Springfield? Uh, four yeah. years in the uh, Illinois House of Representatives, and I also mentioned to Rotary Clubs that I have uh, worked for three unindicted governors. Three unindicted. Yeah, right. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's good. Well, we have a lot to talk about. We're going to take our opening break. We're going to uh, bring these gentlemen in. If you've got some questions as we work our way through this hour, uh, three five six nine three nine seven is how you can join us on the phones. You can text us Castle Heating and Cooling text line three five one five three five seven, and you can email us talk at wdws dot com. Big national story, of course, is the hurricane that's uh, closing in. Of course, locally, the uh, Burnham Mansion came down yesterday. Don't know if you saw some of the uh, footage of that. You can check it out online. We had our uh, cameras there with News Gazette Media showing that as well. So a uh, busy show coming up. We'll talk about. The future of democracy coming up after this opening timeout. Back on Penny for your thoughts, three five six nine three nine seven on this Wednesday morning, sixty-one degrees here at nine thirteen. Jim Nolan is with us, and we've got Brian Gaines with us as well. And they both write extensively, by the way, about uh, political issues, both in the state. And uh, Jim, I know, does a lot of that. And, of course, Brian uh, nationally as well. And uh, we'll talk about some of the things they've been writing about here lately. Uh, Swanson Roofing is one of our sponsors. Swanson Roofing, the roofing dog, just recently voted with the News Gazette Media People's Choice, the best roofing company in East Central Illinois. They are number one, and they are number one for a reason. They take responsibility and ownership of every past customer, and that's a cornerstone of their business. Word of mouth is huge in our town, as you know, and uh, you get good word of mouth, it uh, can go a long way, and they certainly have that. Swanson Roofing, they provide services in Champaign, Vermilion, Ford, and McLean counties. And, of course, uh, locally owned and operated, Swanson Roofing, uh, truly the family-owned business. Corey Swanson, his wife Melissa. Corey went to Rantoul High School and the University of Illinois. Big thing is when you have your uh, roof done, you don't want a lot of mess left over afterwards either. I mean, I've, I've had it happen before. You back up and uh, you run over a nail that they left. I mean, they will completely clean it up 100%, one of their strongest attributes at Swanson Roofing. So uh, get a free estimate anyway here as we head into the fall and work our way through the fall. 217-355-ROOF, 217-355-7663, or visit uh, theroofingdog.com. All right, Future of Democracy is going to be a uh, seminar over at uh, Wesley United Methodist Church, University of Illinois, October 7th. That's a Sunday at 2 in the afternoon. Two of the panelists from that are with us today. We're going to talk about some of the the big uh, political issues of the day, I guess, and the, their look at it. Brian Gaines, uh, professor of political science, and over at the uh, Institute of Government and Public Affairs, Jim Nolan, who's been writing and covering this and been involved in it for many years. Um, let's start with um, people talk about democracy. We really don't have a direct democracy, do we? Brian, I'll let you start on that. Well, we have... Uh the United States has got a, an incredibly diverse set of democratic institutions because the states all vary. The states set their own rules, and, and some states have a lot of direct democracy, California, Colorado, uh, Oregon. When you go to vote, you get a uh, president in the U.S. House, U.S. Senate, and then eight to 15 ballot items, um, initiatives. And in most, uh, some of those cases, they're, they're, you're changing the state constitution. Sometimes you're passing a statute. There's a, uh, quite a lot of direct democracy there. Only Switzerland really exceeds the, so these Western states, but Illinois, on the other hand, has relatively little direct democracy, and, and when it's on the ballot, it's often uh, purely advisory. And in fact, I think you could argue it's, it's a tactical measure, 
the ballot is crammed by one side or the other to try to bring people out so you get to vote in an advisory way on whether your county uh, supports or doesn't support the Iraq war or something. It's not mm-hmm. a decision made by county officials. It's unclear why we'd <laughs> want to be doing that or yeah. uh, offering your advice on whether marijuana should be legalized or uh, on, in the past on same-sex marriage. Those are not passing constitutional amendment statutes or changing the law in any way. And, and as I say, I think they're uh, not... Uh, they're pretty openly efforts to drive turnout by getting hot button topics. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the quick answer I think is uh, th- there is a good measure of, of direct democracy in the United States, but not everywhere in Illinois is on the on the uh, mm-hmm. low end on that to the degree to which the people can directly pass laws, change the uh, status quo. Yeah. But, but if you're thinking of national government, uh, we don't have direct democracy in the sense of the people really governing the, mm-hmm. that's indirect. Uh, right. And uh, we defer to uh, parties, or we used to. They have pretty much evaporated, uh, but we defer to elites and to organizations. And mm-hmm. then we, as people, have the authority to turn out a government. That's probably mm-hmm. our biggest uh, uh, use of uh, yeah. power. Well, the, and the founding fathers, and you both can comment on this, but the, their idea was they didn't necessarily want to just give it directly. I mean, it's by the people, for the people, and so forth, but they have their representatives to represent what those views are, right? I mean, they didn't want it directly. It couldn't be directly, yeah. really. I mean, uh, uh, maybe in the town halls in New, in New England we can have direct democracy. Yeah, yeah I think they were um, they were not uh, true populists in the sense that they wanted the, the national public making all decisions. They believed in having uh, uh, enlightened representatives who were empowered to make decisions. But they also, I mean, what part of the genius of the Constitution was they didn't want a single government. They set up federalism, the division of power, the separation of powers in the national level, but also strong states and local government. And I think they were they would have been comparatively friendly to some form of more direct democracy at some level. And that mm. Jim mentions New England town meetings. That's something that the founders knew about. They weren't trying to uh, prevent those, but they didn't copy that model for the national. And uh, mm-hmm. even in the Internet era where it's easier than ever to canvas people's opinions, I think it would be, it's yeah. pretty clearly impractical to try to manage a national government entirely by uh, mass decision-making. Yeah. Yeah. Alexander Hamilton referred to the public as the great beast. So uh, there were some, you know, uh, in the yeah. original founding era who uh, had their concerns about getting the public involved too deeply, mm. although, as as we've mentioned, the town halls mm-hmm. uh, do provide local government yeah. uh, direct democracy. So when they said all this, when they, and there was a lot of division when they were trying to get the colonies to even agree to become a nation and to go for independence, there was a lot of division even among those original 13 colonies, right, as to which way to go and how to do things. It took, it took some incredibly skillful uh, statesmanship to get uh, to hammer out an agreement. You think about the people involved, and it was an unusually high concentration of talent. Alexander Hamilton, yeah. James Madison, mm-hmm. uh, Thomas Jefferson at times, George Washington, uh, Benjamin Franklin. They're, they're towering figures. I, I don't think it's um, likely to be controversial if I said if we name the most prominent politicians today, we don't have the same <laughs> The same level of talent involved, the same level of intellectual heft uh, here or, you know, probably anywhere in the world. I think the United States was blessed in having uh, that set of people um, designing the institutions at the outset. And they uh, they didn't do a perfect job, but I think the, the, yeah. 
durability of the country is a good sign that they, they did a lot of things right. Yeah, the ability to bring Virginia and the New England states together yeah. in, into a in, into mm-hmm. our uh, present system is, was incredible. With this, with the setup, with the branches of government, executive, legislative, judicial, with the House and Senate, what did they base it on? What did they did they look to Europe and say? Okay, we like this part, we don't like this part. How did they come up with it? Some of it was explicitly maintaining uh, the norms that were already in place in, in from Britain, uh, and the you know the initial revolution was not regarded so much as rejecting British government as rejecting the the uh, in the failure by the king to respect the norms of British government that the they were subjects of the king who were being mistreated. Um, so partly they were keeping that separation of powers was. Um, Sort of a novelty, but they were they were looking at the, uh, the history of the Swiss Confederation, and they, they were all incredibly well trained. They knew about classical institutions, and they mm. copied some models from ancient Athens. Uh, some of it was really Alexander Hamilton and James Madison making things up from scratch, and yeah. <laughs> thinking you know we should we should have this kind of judiciary, but let's worry about this. The Electoral College was was very much a, a hodgepodge, a compromise, the, the different ideas about how you elect a president, and and uh, mm-hmm. just blending them in a way that would. You know, Part of it was, was, as I say, sort of clever institutional design. Some of it was just forging a compromise that everybody could agree to. The small states are worried about the big states. You've got to come up with something that will appease them both. Yeah. Then you had slavery, and mm-hmm. uh, so we counted African Americans as three-fifths of a person. Yeah. Uh, again, part of the compromises necessary to uh, make mm-hmm. it happen. We're with uh, Jim Nolan here, a professor of public policy. We've got, uh, of course, Brian Gaines over at the University of Illinois as well. Uh, talking about the future of democracy, um, people have talked, and O'Brien, you've written about this, about the Electoral College and why they set it up the way they did. Because people, a lot of people say, and there's even states that have tried to think, okay, let's go this direction and try to get it more where it's just one vote, one person, and you get the most votes, you win. But what? why did they set up the Electoral College the way they did? Well, uh, the one thing that has to be said is they, they had in mind uh, the Electoral College was was going to empower the electors to use their discretion in a way that's pretty quickly become obsolete. So they um, they had in mind that mostly they were worried about the small states and the big states and how you get them to agree to a system uh, that means that they're, they're, they'll all have input into who becomes president, but the big states can't dominate. And the Electoral College was one route to that path. But they, they thought the electors would then carefully weigh the, a set of candidates and pick partly because they also designed this thinking there would not be strong parties. Very quickly, we ended up with strong parties. In a couple of electoral cycles, it was basically a two-party system. And uh, so then the idea that the electors were going to exercise their judgment kind of went out the door when they had the accidental tie between Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr in 1800. And they had to redesign the system a little more to separate the, the presidential and vice presidential candidates. We, we hadn't heard, you know, in the uh, multiple hundred years since, we, very few people have ever made the case that the electors should be acting on their own judgment and not just taking the will of the people as expressed in the vote and implementing it until the last election yeah. when there was a, a, an intense, um, ultimately failed campaign to get electors to prevent Donald Trump from taking the presidency by um, substituting anybody else. And sort of a lot of letter writing to electors, pleading with them, not to uh, you know, electors who were pledged to support Trump, and in some cases pledged to support Clinton, to come up with some other candidate. Um, and as I say, that didn't fail. It's, it didn't succeed. It's not surprising it failed. Mm-hmm. But on the whole, the the idea that the electors are um, a separate force, you know, decision maker, and this has has gone by the wayside, and now there's sort of a weird 
bit of trivia that we people think about themselves as voting for president. They don't say, I'm going to vote for the electors who are pledged to support Donald Trump. They say, mm-hmm. I'm voting for Trump or Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. So that's one feature of the Electoral College that's still – it's pretty anomalous now. It's an, anachronistic that we think of ourselves as voting for the president, but we're not. We're voting for electors who then in turn will vote in a separate election and mostly but not entirely will will do what the people in their state told them to do. Yeah. 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 Well, and go ahead. Well, today we have the challenge of a changing demographic mix with the uh, Midwest and Plains kind of hollowing out in p- terms of population relative to the coast, yet still retaining uh, um, maybe a slightly disproportionate uh, number of electors. And uh, so we'll, we might conceivably have more elections in which one candidate receives uh, uh, more popular votes than another, but the latter candidate is elected by the Electoral College. Mm-hmm. So that, that's on people's minds because it's happened now twice in, in recent memory, uh, 2000 and 2016. Yeah. It happened uh, several times in the, in the late 1800s and then again in 1960. This is a, I wrote a small article with this because people don't recognize always that John Kennedy got fewer votes than Nixon. Yeah. It's not usually reported that way because the Democrat, Democratic electors got more votes than Republican electors, but some of them were segregationists in the Deep South who had made it perfectly clear from the primary on that they were not supporting Kennedy they tried very hard to make sure Kennedy wasn't elected right to the last minute, and they cast their votes for Harry Flood Byrd. If you take those guys out and take them at their word and say they weren't Kennedy electors at all, as soon as the Democratic primary was over and they'd won, Kennedy couldn't have their votes, then Kennedy got fewer votes than Nixon. Mm-hmm. But the, um, I think that the way that the, you can get a popular vote in Electoral College vote splitting is not as well understood as it could be. Part of it is, as Jim mentioned, the demographic change that the, um, the, the weights, the number of electoral votes the states get, is de- are determined by the census. So over the course of a, of a decade, as the uh, populations change, they, uh, the electoral weights get out of date. When they're revised again, they're temporarily correct, and then they're out of date again. So the elections mm-hmm. that are right, right before the end of a, a census, like 2000, which is one of those weird cases, have, in some respects, the most out-of-date electoral weights. And this, some states are just about to gain some, and some are going to lose some. But we don't we don't update those for each presidential mm-hmm. election. That's one reason there's this this possibility of a discrepancy. Um, another one is that the apportionment is done by population, not by voters. So there are states that get pretty high turnout. There are states that have pretty high non-citizen populations. So California Californians complain about the electoral college, thinking that it's bad for them. It isn't really bad in the sense of comparing their share of the presidential vote and their share of the electoral college vote. They're about where they should be. Florida is a state that is actually kind of ripped off by the Electoral College because it has a higher turnout. It has fewer non-citizens, and uh, so it, it and it's growing. So that at, as the apportionment moves on, Florida gets out of date. It's due to get more uh, seats, more mm. electors, but they don't get them. Mm. Um, so there are there are actually several different mechanisms in addition to the, the Senate. Every state gets mm. two electors because of the Senate. Even Wyoming gets two, and California gets two. But there are several reasons they can be. You can get a different result, and I. I think in a lot of the complaints, people focus. I mean, since 2016, people have been saying Hillary Clinton was robbed because she won California by by such a big margin, got way more votes, but she didn't win the election. But um, you know, she knew the rules. Everybody knew the rules in advance. <laughs> well, and uh, is that a, when people when you hear that, what do you think when people say, "Well, she got how many? I don't know what she won by a popular vote was." Four or five million. Was it? I mean, in the end, it was it was more than a percentage point. Yeah. But I, I kind of think that that's like saying we really won that football game. We were outscored, but we gained more yards than the other team. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So both both teams yeah. knew that you win by yeah. getting points, not by getting yards. And so you were you you weren't trying to get more yards, and in the end, 
your your game book, your your tactics weren't the right ones to get the most points. Yeah, if it had been by popular election, the two campaigns would have uh, developed different tactics and strategies yeah. for going after votes in yeah. a different way. That's a great analogy. That's one I understand as uh, <laughs> as a sports announcer. That's uh, that's a great football analogy. So uh, we're going to uh, have the news here coming up. We'll get a break in before that. But uh, Brian Gaines and Jim Nolan with us. Three five six nine three nine seven. If you have any questions or thoughts, we have a couple of texts in with questions. We'll get to those. Uh, the midterm elections coming up. Your sense of what's going to happen? Everybody's predicting the Democrats win back the House. Are you? I'll def- kind of uh, I have camp? some thoughts, but I'll defer to Brian because he follows it more closely <laughs> than I do. Yeah, yeah. I, can, I think the Democrats will win the U.S. House, and I think the the big question is, um, will they win by a enough seats that they have their their biggest even more of a margin than than they had after 2006 or will republicans just hang on in about 20 seats and it'll end up being uh let's say a 15 to 20 seat margin relatively closely divided house uh that's a tough prediction i don't want to put much money on it either way i i kind of think they'll get the house but it won't be the the sort of tsunami election where they have a 50-seat margin, and they, uh, it's a total disaster for the Republicans. I had uh, dinner the other evening with Ray LaHood, who follows uh, politics intimately as a former congressman and cabinet official, and he just declared outright that there's going to be a blue wave, especially because uh, the suburbs and uh, the women's vote and his feeling that women are turning out because they dislike Trump so much. Now, I'm, I'm speaking for Ray LaHood in saying mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Well, and that's uh, and I, I saw a, a percentage. There's like, um, and the popularity polls are one thing, but it's like uh, thirty. The president has solid support, about thirty-three percent, somewhere in there. There's another ten percent of people who don't like him necessarily, but like his policies. And then there's another ten percent, maybe that voted for him, but are now turned off by his personality and what he's done and what they do in those suburban voting districts in different parts of the country will flip it the other way when they vote Democrat. Yeah, and then in the end, I think that state by state, the outcomes can be driven by turnout. And if people who are ambivalent about uh, Trump, they maybe favor Republican candidates, but they're unhappy with Donald Trump, or they, they like some of the things he's done and dislike others intensely, if those people stay home, it will be a huge blue wave. If Republican candidates, maybe including the president, but probably not so much the president as the, the candidates who are actually on the ballot, if they can persuade um, these ambivalent voters that this isn't just a referendum on Donald Trump, it's a vote, an, a, an election in which there's something that they like about that the Republican candidate more than the Democrat, then it'll be a smaller blue wave. Mm-hmm. But it will be it'll be a good election for the Democrats. I can't see how they can fail to take control of the U.S. House. Mm-hmm. I don't think they'll take control of the U.S. Senate, just given which which races are in play. Because mm-hmm. there's know? a lot of Democratic seats yeah. that are up this and, time in Trump areas in trump areas and some yeah so we have heidi heitkamp in north dakota and however unpopular donald trump is in illinois and california and oregon he's pretty popular still in north dakota that's a tough race for democrats west virginia maybe trump's best state in terms of his approval ratings there's a democrat trying to get reelected there Mm -hmm. a conservative democrat but just the same that's a tough race for the democrats in a year when there's a very big blue tide and it will be uh we'll see lots of of house races turning over in states like maybe illinois and pennsylvania that doesn't mean that uh, Donald Trump is poison everywhere. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back with Michael Kaiser in the news, Brian Gaines, Jim Nolan, our guests. Have any comments or questions? Let's uh, get those going in as we continue. But first, this time out. A Penny for Your Thoughts with Brian Barnhart continues on News Talk 1400 WDWS. You can reach out to us on the phone at 217-356-9397. Email talk at WDWS.com. 
or text on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line, 217-351-5357. Back on Penny for your thoughts, talking with Brian Gaines and with uh, Jim Nolan. They've been affiliated and or working with the uh, University of uh, Illinois and, of course, the Institute of Government and Public Affairs. They've written extensively. Talking about the uh, seminar coming up at the Wesley United Methodist Church, October 7th on a Sunday at 2 o'clock. They'll be talking about the future of democracy. And we're just visiting with them about some of the current issues, but also uh, had a texter in saying, uh, hey, let's talk about the future of democracy. You know, the country's been tested several times over the uh, course. Uh, Can the country survive? Will democracy survive over the long term here? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm optimistic. Yeah. I think the uh, there's always a tendency to see to think whatever challenges we face now are unprecedented. It's it's never been so bad. Um, and I I'm I don't think that that's correct. I think the for example civility. If you just finished watching the cabinet hearings, you might think the the uh, senators were at each other's throats, and it was not a deliberative session at all. It was it was grandstanding of, of you know, two kinds, and. Uh, could the Senate ever have been so bad? But the, there was a period when senators were attacking each other with sticks on the floor. Right, beating know. each other up with canes. Yeah, right? and uh, you know we have seen a country more divided. Certainly the Civil War, the country was, we, was far more divided. But I think at the founding, there were very, very strong divisions. Mm-hmm. And even 50 years ago, and maybe 1968, Jim, Jim yeah. will have some firsthand memories of 1968. <laughs> well... I was finishing up my two years in the service uh, up at uh, Fifth Army Headquarters north of Chicago when Martin Luther King was assassinated, and I was called down along with other uh, members of the Army to um, try to quell the riots. Uh, I remember sitting in the bar on the revolving rooftop uh, Holiday Inn on the lake and looking out to the west side of Chicago, which was literally ablaze. I mean, so there are there have been other challenges. I I think it would be much better for our society if we had a bell shaped curve of consensus, um, but now we seem to have a U shaped uh, bipolar kind of division, yeah. and that's always a challenge. Well, Brian, you know this. You both know this. Studying the the history of this. I mean, you, when you're uh, the way they draw districts. Uh, in the, each of these states, I mean, the seats are, what's the percentage of seats in the House, for instance, that are relatively safe, very safe, before you even start? And if you're in a conservative district, if you're not being conservative, they'll run somebody to the right of you. If you're not liberal enough in some districts, they'll run somebody, as we're seeing in some of these uh, Socialist Party candidates, basically, uh, that are on the left of the Democratic Party. I mean, if if we're going to draw the districts to have that happen, I mean, should we be surprised by what we're seeing, I guess? Yeah, and I think redistricting is a big part of it, that both the incumbents in both parties are at least as concerned about their primaries as they are about the general election. And when they're worried about primary competition, that means Democrats are, are moving left and Republicans are moving right. That's how we end up with the picture Jim was just painting of, of uh, not the, the U-shaped curve or the, the bell curve, but the U-shape, the inverse. And um, it's it's been pretty clear in the cycle. It's not just in the in the U.S. House races, though. I, I think redistricting is a big ingredient, and it could easily it could be fixed not easily, but it could be fixed with better procedures. But it, we see it in statewide races too. The you know the ca- candidates for governor in Florida this next cycle are going to be pretty pretty right Republican and a pretty left Democrat, mm-hmm. a, a socialist in the model of Bernie Sanders. It'll be a very interesting race to watch. But that's not a due to redistricting. That's just the sort of polarization that means that the Florida electorate in the two primaries was uh, the Democrats and Republicans don't see eye to eye on very much. Hmm. 
All right, three five six nine three nine seven. We have a couple of guests here, Jim Nolan and Brian Gaines, and we go to uh, Carl is on the line with us. Good morning, Carl. Yes, uh, hello, Professor Nolan. It's been a long time. Hi, Carl. Good to hear your voice. Uh, thank you. Um, I was just uh, thinking about, you were talking about town meeting, and I can't help remembering that uh, John Adams would say, he said at least once, that there was no true democracy even in a town meeting because you still have to have a ma- magistrate to uh, uh, implement the policy. Well, that's true. Uh, I remember the classic by E.E. E. Schatzneider, you don't forget that name, of 1960, called The Semi-Sovereign People. And he basically said that uh, it's very difficult for the people as a people to make day-to-day decisions. They can't. And so we do, as you suggest, Brian, we uh, have representatives who are to uh, represent or comprise a smaller group that can make decisions. So, yeah, you're right. Uh, you're right, Carl. It's it's difficult. And uh, what, one thing I think you, uh, in your resume that uh, isn't included, you managed the campaign of uh, Charles Percy in 1978. Right, so right. Wow. I yeah. wanted to throw that in, too. Yeah. I, anyway. I, I took a sure winner to the brink of defeat, according to some of the observers, because we got in trouble near the end of the campaign. But we did, uh, there was one advertisement about Percy saying he'd spent more time in Tanganyika than he'd spent in Illinois the preceding six years. <laughs> so we had our challenges. Th- thank you, Carl. Appreciate okay, it. Thank you. Yep. Uh, somebody texts in, says, with democracy, can one be a true Democrat but privately be a Republican and vice versa, or by also voting split votes? <laughs> by all means. I think that uh, in, in when you vote in, in a lot of the world's democracies, you get one or two votes. You, you vote for your local member of parliament, and the, the parliamentary parties choose who the, the prime minister is going to be. The people don't select the leader of the country. They just select their local representative. Americans, for good or for bad, get... 15 to 40 votes to cast when they pass the, when they when they face the ballot they can vote on local offices in the state legislature both one or two houses of the state legislature many statewide offices an attorney general controller uh, lots of people still split their votes even in this era when we think that it's never been more polarized there are plenty of people who will pick a couple of republicans and then pick a democrat that they like on personal grounds uh, again that's you know, one of the sort of ingenious features of american democracy it probably lowers turnout because the prospect of voting is so daunting it's like taking a mini mini sat exam some people who don't really like politics very much think oh, i don't want to face that ballot but um you know it what it embodies is the the empowering the people where it's not direct democracy but they do get a say in an awful lot of uh, representatives yeah Another dimension is that we have primary elections as well as general elections, and the primary election, as uh, Brian knows better than I, is often the deciding election because districts tend to be uh, either Republican or Democrat, Mm -hmm. so the primary becomes critical. But it's another step in the process that other countries don't have. Do you gentlemen feel like we can can eventually – it took the Civil War in 1860 there to finally blow up the polarization – uh, you know, from the northern to the abolitionists in the north and the northern Republicans and the southern Democrats and so forth. Um, I mean, does it take a cataclysmic event? Like, I mean, how do we get back to where we're not so polarized anymore? I mean, that's yeah, I, how's that for a difficult question? <laughs> it, it is a difficult one. I, I'm, I'm certainly not predicting a civil war. I, yeah. I, I'm, I, my Part of my argument is that uh, as bad as things might seem, it's not really that anomalous. Lots of uh, politics is about... Uh, 
division and disagreement over policies. And um, in some respects, the the election of Donald Trump has been he's such an unusual figure that the focus has been exclusively on him. But in in some ways, it's actually working against what was the classic polarization because he's flipping some positions to the Republican Party. And I think mm-hmm. people who for example, you know, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump both talked, uh, made a case against free trade. Donald Trump in power is doing things that's making some Republicans uncomfortable. He's probably, uh, despite his other behavior, making some Democrats like him more. So the the, th- the thought that in every way we're just spreading apart, getting more polarized is uh, in some ways true, but I don't think mm-hmm. it's it's true about every mm-hmm. aspect of life or every aspect of political decision making. One challenge we face today is that the political parties have become much weaker than they were in the past. And uh, in the past, the parties uh, tended uh, to uh, seek the middle ground because they needed the middle ground to win their elections. And with parties so weak, we have uh, money taking the place of parties, and money tends to, uh, from what I can tell, uh, be a polarizing factor. All right, back to the phones here to uh, Zoe's up next. Hi, Zoe. Good morning. Hi, Brian. I have a weird question. Mm-hmm. You just made me ask it, and I, I don't know if anyone else is interested. Why was Charles Percy in Tanyanika? <laughs> he was he was uh, on the Foreign Relations Committee. I'm sorry to have brought that up, Brian. Oh, I couldn't <laughs> help myself. No. Well, it was the point that he had been spending more time uh, outside Illinois than inside Illinois, so oh, it I, became I, an I issue. I know, I get you. I just thought it was curious. And that was interesting. So. I haven't been to Tanganyika. Have you been there? No, I haven't been. No. Where is that? <laughs> no, I definitely have not. In fact, I haven't even heard anything about it for years until you mentioned it and I, I I was just I thought well I'm going to show my age now here so, well, you know, thank you, Zoe. Chuck Percy, thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, texter in says California is doing everything they can to get illegal aliens to vote. Says get rid of the electoral college and guess who elects our president? Well, so <laughs> the, uh, the it is a live controversy um, who is able to vote, and it's. Uh, whether they're legal or, or illegal, non-citizens can't vote in federal elections at the moment. But um, suffrage is so suffrage can be controlled federally, as with the, the amendment that gave the vote to 18 to 21 year olds. That was a national law. But the states have a lot of leeway in in changing who's in power to vote. And uh, there are local elections where non-citizens can vote. Very few. Um, I don't think the the uh, voting rights in federal elections for non-citizens is is an impending change. But I would, you know, I mentioned already California, in fact, profits in, the, in electoral college terms by getting more electors because it's, the electors are portioned by population. So the bigger the population, mm-hmm. whether they're minors or non-citizens, the more electors you get. And all the complaints about how the electoral college is supposedly unfair to California, I think that point is almost always overlooked. And if the Democrats are, uh, as many predict, winning the House, a lot of those seats are coming from California, right? Yeah, this so the, I mean, uh, the apportionment gives them U.S. House seats and electors in, this, in mm-hmm. the same number, so they, they get more House seats than they would otherwise get. Uh, the states fight very hard to get those marginal House seats. The, Montana went to court trying to get a second seat when it got cut from two to one. Um, so, yeah, and, and then in the end, then, how the, then we get back to redistricting. After you got 52 seats, where how the district's drawn, and that's sort of mm-hmm. – uh, the black arts of of politics. It, and, yeah. and I said earlier, it, it can't be fixed easily, but it can be fixed. The states, some of the states have what I think is a genuinely nonpartisan process for drawing districts. Most don't. And so where the parties are involved one way or another, it turns into some kind of a gerrymander most of the time. I think people who are mm-hmm. cynical about districting are right to be so. But it isn't utterly impossible to have someone who's 
essentially trying to draw compact, relatively compact districts that reflect communities of interest that are not designed to help one party or hurt the other or to help all the incumbents and hurt the challengers. Mm-hmm. All right, back to the phones here to Mark. Good morning, Mark. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, as Ben Franklin said, I give you a republic if you can keep it. Joseph Stalin said it's not people who vote that count, it's the people who count the votes. And as Mao said, power comes from the barrel of a gun. Uh, Mr. Nolan, back when you had that seminar uh, on Hyatt versus Kinsey, I wanted to say something. I backed down at the last second. There were so many alumni sitting to the left that were in their 70s and 80s, I just decided to not go there. What was the, what was the seminar again? On uh, Hayek versus Keynesian theory. Oh, Hayek and Keynes? The two. Okay. Yeah. I, I, a few years. I, I know those gentlemen vaguely, but I don't remember the seminar. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, I, I thought you were one of those who put it on. Oh, I, I, I guess not. Well, I don't recall so, but uh, yeah. clearly well, that, would, that would have been a fascinating. <laughs> that would have been a fascinating <laughs> seminar. Yeah. Well, it, it was. It was during Obama's reign, and I wanted to go up and say, "Does it really matter when you have a corrupt government and you have the International Bank of Settlements, the IMF, and the Federal Reserve all working on fiat money and manipulating the world's currencies? Yeah. It doesn't work." Well, here we are talking about democracy in a republic, and we've lost the the meaning to a republic. And there's a huge push to just talk about democracy, democracy, and ignore the foundation. And getting back to Kinsey and uh, Hayek, obviously Trump just proved Hayek true. Hmm. His tariffs are working. Hmm. He's letting the, the average man go out and use his brain to make money. And it's working here in America, and it's going to really multiply in time if it doesn't get stopped. Hey, Mark, but th- it, go ahead. Getting, yeah, getting to this point here... Uh, how can we really talk about a democracy when our government is full of globalists on both sides of the aisle who are giving sovereignty over to the United Nations every time we turn around? All right, let's and let him answer that, okay? Yeah. All, right. All right, thanks, Mark. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer this in a mildly weaselly way and not talk about the United States, but talk about Britain for a second, mm-hmm. because I, uh, I think the Brexit vote, we, you know, we're talking about whether there's direct democracy. Britain doesn't have very much direct democracy, but occasionally... They let the people speak in a referendum, and they did on Brexit. And the conservative party that called it uh, governed for staying in the European Union. They wanted Mm -hmm. to, and they lost. And that was – it's received a lot of criticism. A lot of people have compared that vote, saying this is a crazy move by Britain. And people who are unhappy with Donald Trump uh, say that there's a parallel between the two. But I would say that was uh, a triumph of democracy. Whether you think it was a good or a bad policy, the British people got the chance to speak. They defied their government. They defied the major parties because, in fact, mm-hmm. the, all the major parties wanted to stay in the European Union. Uh, it's playing out in a messy way. It's perhaps the exit from the European Union is being mismanaged by the uh, the current prime minister who wasn't really in favor. But um, you know, in, in regard to this sort of, well, a country isn't democratic if it's constrained by international institutions, the European Union, uh, the, the UN um, – you know, there's some truth to the fact that, that international agreements tie the hands of governments, but ultimately governments can leave them, and, and Britain leaving the EU is a nice instance of, again, whether it's good or bad policy, the people spoke, and mm-hmm. their uh, Resulted in a change in it, the it, prime it's, minister. It's right? a messy change, yeah. and it's, we'll, we'll wait and see how it, it turns out. But yeah, I, I, I think it would be, it's hard to say that that was anti-democratic. I think that was an instance of democracy triumphing. All right, let's take a two-minute break here, Adam, and then we'll come back, and we'll talk about the 25th Amendment here in a moment. 
Brian Gaines and uh, Jim Nolan with us here. We're uh, grateful to them for spending an hour with us here. We've uh, kind of barely scratched the surface on a lot of this, but we want to touch on the 25th Amendment because that's come up in the news here in regards to the current president. Yeah, we've been praising the Constitution in broad generalities. This is a very specific passage. It's something the founders didn't, you know, was it what the 25th Amendment added? It's much later. It's after the Kennedy assassination. And it, it deals with presidential incapacity or disability, also with vice presidential succession. But the point at the moment is, after this pretty peculiar op-ed in the New York Times by an anonymous senior official of the Trump administration came out saying the, the White House is chaos and, the, and, and a bunch of people within the administration are trying to subvert the president quietly and redirect him, Elizabeth Warren, the senator from Massachusetts, and Carl Bernstein and some others said, well, that means the 25th Amendment should be invoked. He should be removed from office by the cabinet and the vice president. And I think if you if you know the legislative history of the 25th Amendment, it's clearly not true. The 25th Amendment was designed to do, deal with strokes, kidnapping perhaps, sudden mental incapacity. But everybody involved said at the time, this is not to be used for impeachable offenses or incompetence or laziness. It's just for the very special situation in which a president cannot uh, speak for himself to say, I can't make decisions. And um, it might be a, a sort of clever tactics on the part of, of Warren to try to wrong foot the Republicans saying it's up to you to get this president out of office. But I think if you if you pay any attention to legislative history, it's very clear that's not what that amendment was for. Yeah. Brian, I have a question for you. You're a journalist. Uh, I'm not a Trump fan, but I was awfully uncomfortable by the anonymity of that uh, yeah. op-ed in the New York Times. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I thought if you know, you're going to write it, and I understand you don't want to lose your job, but it's like if you've got – if you're going to put that out there, you need to tell who you are. And uh, – I was a little surprised by that. Yeah. So, all right, well, we got to run, guys. But uh, thank you for coming in, and uh, good luck with the seminar thank coming you up. Very much, yeah. And it's uh, not about Hayek and Keynes. <laughs> <laughs> October seventh, two o'clock, Wesley United Methodist Church at the University of Illinois, and uh, like I said, we just barely hit on the tip of the iceberg. So lots more content there. Yeah, lots we'll more talk content. about other things then. Yes. So, uh, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, coming up next, more open line time for you and then we will also talk about some authors coming to the champaign public library that i think you'll enjoy all of that straight ahead uh, and freshman enrollment numbers at the u of i wdws champaign urbana it's the second hour of a penny for your thoughts with brian barnhart on news talk 1400 wdws you can reach out to us on the phone at 217-356-9397 email talk at wdws.com or text on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 217-351-5357. Now, here's Brian Barnhart. And we're back. Any for your thoughts, News Talk 1400 DWS. About 67 degrees here in uh, downtown Champaign at last check. Appreciate our guests, Brian Gaines and uh, Jim Nolan. They're part of a panel, Tom Eulen and uh, some others there involved in putting that together. The Wesley United Methodist Church, U of I campus, October 7th at 2 o'clock. If you'd like to hear more and to go ask them questions, and they're going to have a seminar and a panel discussion, you can do that on that day. But uh, just while they were here, I wanted to talk with the big midterms coming up and everything else uh, with the uh, polarization that is um, in our country today. I just thought it was pretty timely to have them on anyway. All right, uh, ten twelve here at DWS three five six nine three nine seven is our phone number. You can text us Castle Heating and Cooling text line three five one five three five seven and email us talk at wdws dot com. 
MX Electric, voted by News Gazette Media, the people's choice, as the best in electrical uh, service. And, of course, uh, the man there is Max. Nikita is really the one who answers the phone. But they uh, certainly are willing to help you with any job, big or small. They do uh, large projects and small projects. They do remodels as well as new construction, inspection correction, free estimates, panel upgrades. They can install TVs for you, ceiling fans, bulb chains out, retrofit, and so forth. They want you to know that it's never that bad. My advice is anything with electricity, put the screwdriver down and walk away. Let the professionals deal with it, okay, is what I tell you. But uh, Max is the owner of MX Electric. They've had 15 years of experience. They've seen just about everything. So give them a call, 359-7293. 359-7293 is the phone number. Nikita will answer and get you set up with Max, and then you can get your electrical issues fixed. All right, 356-9397. Thanks to them for being a sponsor with us. Tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., Greg Solier with us. Our staff meteorologist will get the forecast. Looks pretty dry here for the next several days. Good for harvest as we get that underway, but also the hurricane. Pretty timely there. 1013, also we'll talk about some authors coming through at the Champaign Public Library towards the end of the show. And here locally, big news at the Champaign City Council last night, but also some numbers out on the number of freshmen at the University of Illinois. We'll give you some information on that this hour as well. All right, let's go uh, to the uh, phones here, and let's go to uh, Gene. Good morning, Gene. Good morning, Brian. You may remember uh, last time I tried to call you, I substituted the Bismarck for a Gunkirk. (laughs) Remember that? I do remember that, but thank you. It's okay. Yeah. Yesterday you got some calls, and uh, a couple of them really questionable. One was on the Pentagon that it was not hit by a plane. It was hit by a missile. Yeah. Um, I'm with the Retiree Affairs Office in Rantoul, and three of our members who were at these meetings, attend our meetings, uh, had sons who were colonels on duty in the Pentagon the day the plane hit. None of them were injured seriously. I think they had some, might have had some side effects and so forth, but uh, they were not right where the point of impact was. And anybody familiar with the Pentagon knows how big that building is. It's huge. They were on the other side, but three of them were full colonels. And uh, they were assigned duty in the Pentagon on that day. So uh, any any idea that it was not a plane that hit the Pentagon is uh, it's totally wrong. Yeah, and I, well, I I don't know. You know, you can see what you see with your own eyes, um, and then you can choose to believe something else. I absolutely. I don't I don't quite yeah. get that. But uh, and uh, I just I tried to call yesterday, but you were swamped. So uh, <laughs> I thought I'd call today yeah. and just uh, mention that. Also, all three of these gentlemen were graduates of Rantoul High School. Is that right? Yeah, went on wow. to go to college, and and one of them, uh, Steve Cullen, as he still comes around, he comes to visit his mother. She was uh, a young woman at the time the Blitzkrieg, Blitzkrieg was going on in uh, London, mm. and uh, he he's in Texas, and he comes to see her frequently, and, and also provides us at the retiree thing with... Uh, 
some good information, you know. So anyhow, I just wanted to get that out there, you know, to the guy that called and said it was a missile or whatever. No, no, it was a plane and uh, highly visible. Okay. All right. Thank you, Gene. Uh huh. Yep. Bye bye. Great to hear from you. And we're at uh, let's see here, ten sixteen. Let's go to Tiny. Good morning, Tiny. Good morning. I would uh, like to uh, answer Obama's speech last Friday. This is our first chance to do it. All right. He um, just uh, he was there because of the ethics and government. He went in to the state senate as I've said before, with the for sale thing hanging around his neck. He was bought immediately by Salini and his three crooks. Three of those were in jail. I don't know whether Salini is or not. But that's not ethics and government. Everything he's did in his eight years, he blamed, if it was bad, he blamed Bush. He wants to take credit for what Trump was doing now. He uh, he talked about the Trump regime reminding him of uh, Nazism. I, I you know anybody that lived through that, how can you? What what grounds have they got? I I can't even imagine. It's uh, it's absolutely. Uh, he 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 spent the whole day uh, politicking, running the Republicans down. He didn't go in there and tell these kids what they can do and give them a nice speech that would boost them. Uh, they liked his speech. Everybody likes to hear him talk. I like to hear him talk. But he's a, don't go in there in the room and start talking and telling everybody on ethics on government because he went in there ready to go. He was for sale. He, could, he went in. He didn't have two nickels to rub together in his pockets. He come out there a multi-millionaire. Well, you don't get that way, you know. Uh, something's happening. He's a, he's an almost a hundred percent socialist. And we we're talking about democracy in our last uh, first hour. Yes, our democracy is uh, is in danger, but nothing new. This has been going on for years. There's fights between the Democrats and Republicans. There always will be. People make too much of it. Uh, it's it's uh, it's what happens in this country. If the Democrats win here in November, great. That's great. If they don't win, uh, don't be crying and whining and bawling and going to Washington D.C. the day after he's elected and with your bonnets on and whining about him being elected. Uh, let's just go on and uh, and try to make the country better. Thank right. you very much. Sounds good, Tiny. I appreciate it. Good advice. Let's take a quick break. Back with more Penny for Your Thoughts after this. Penny for Your Thoughts, News Talk 1400 DWS. Uh, Julie Wirth's going to join me here in a minute or two talk about some enrollment numbers at the U of I that are just out, fresh off the presses. And let's go to Henry here. Henry, good morning. Yeah, hey, Brian. Let me pull off the road real quick. Uh, oh. When I was I was listening to your uh, previous caller, I pretty much agree with him a lot about uh, what Barack Obama is doing after eight years of blaming Bush and now trying to take credit take credit for the uh, uh, economy. Uh, I mean, when he left office, and you know, for a few years leading up to that, uh, you know, they were saying, "Hey, one point nine, one point five percent 
GDP each year is going to be the new normal, and now here it is, three and a half, four, and it's probably going to be four and a half here this next quarter. Uh, and now he's trying to take credit for that. It's just so amazing, uh, the ego of this guy. Uh, but uh, what I really want to talk about was a letter to the editor today. I would encourage people to either go online or look at their paper again. It's by a Terry um, Mayer or Maurer. Uh, I don't know how you pronounce his last name. But anyway, he's complaining about Rodney Davis as part of this left-wing Alinsky-style effort to demonize uh, Rodney Davis. They've been doing this for the last 10 months. If people haven't noticed, there's almost like a daily rain of letters just totally condemning him. But anyway, this Terry fellow, uh, he's condemning uh, uh, Rodney for publishing a, a picture, apparently, of him talking to protesters. And apparently this guy is under the impression, this Meyer guy, is under impression that if you don't vote for someone, you're not really their constituent, and really you are their constituent. Uh, you're maybe not a supporter of them, and I totally agree with that, uh, that, that Mr. Davis is there not to pander to people who are opposed to his policy, but rather... To, uh, to vote according to the, those who have voted for him. That's what a representative is. He represents the interests of those within his district who want certain policies enacted, and he's under no obligation to, to push uh, you know, left-wing programs, especially those that really fleece the American people. But anyway, it just shows you how unhinged these people are because whether he talks to protesters and they don't like that, especially if you take their pictures and it ends up in a in a, a, a flyer or whatever, and it's just showing that he's willing to reach out to those people, or or uh, whatever the case may be. They're just whether he does or he doesn't, they're not going to vote for him, and they're just they're just it's just more hate, more hate, more negative, and it's just where the Democratic Party is, which is a shame. Because I used to be a Democrat, I'm a conservative libertarian, and voted independent, and I've still voted for Democrats mm-hmm. now and then. But it's really, it's really a shame, Brian, just how totally polarized this, this country has become. And I know it, it happens on both sides of the aisle, but really the Democrats have become really unhinged. It, you know, people tongue-in-cheek talk about the Bush of Bush. Well, there was that, too, but the Trump derangement syndrome, mm-hmm. there is something to that. The, the, uh, we've had... We've had uh, friends who tend to be liberal who've, who've one sense, have unfriended us on, on Facebook and stuff. And we didn't even vote for Trump. We voted for Gary Anderson. So it's really yeah. amazing what's happening. All right. Hey, thank you, Henry. Hey, well, thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. Yep. we got Jim and Bill coming up here. i got Julie first, though. How are you, Julie? Good. How are you, Brian? Good. you got some enrollment numbers, huh? Yeah. U of I, freshman? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The U of I released some numbers this morning. Uh, They have had another record-breaking freshman class. Uh, They've been seeing an increase the last few years. But what's, I think, even more interesting is that the number of in-state students is the highest it's been in about 10 years. Hmm. And it's even higher than they were planning for, as it turns out. I talked to admissions director Andy Borst this morning. They had hoped to see a slight increase in that number. You know, they try to sort of keep things at a similar level each year, but they saw a huge increase in their yield in terms of the number of students who accepted their offer of admission. Mm. And, you know, I think they're saying it might have something to do with people being aware of this issue of, you know, out-migration, of, of the state losing talented mm-hmm. high school students to other states, and and that maybe, you know, they're 
except more people are accepting. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And uh, it looks like the freshman class includes record numbers of students from underrepresented groups and first-generation college students. Yes, mostly uh, by Hispanic students. Uh, the mm-hmm. population of the state, uh, Hispanic people in the state is increasing rapidly, and they're seeing that reflected here. Actually, the number of black students dropped this year in terms of those who chose to mm-hmm. enroll. They said they accepted more black students. They had, you know, they... Uh, recruited more black students, but they saw a drop in the yield there, and they're looking into that a little more closely. Mm-hmm. And the total enrollment is? Total enrollment is? is about 49? Yes, we're approaching 50,000. That does include online enrollments, so mm-hmm. there was a, a big enrollment in the IMBA program. They've launched a few other graduate-level online programs, so mm-hmm. on-campus, I think, is a little bit less than that. Mm-hmm. Is that the whole system, or is that? <laughs> no, um, that's just this just campus, this, so this we're, in the, we're in the high 40s now. Yeah. For, wow. All right, and you've got a big story on it, so you can go to uh, the website. Yeah, we just I just updated it. it again a few minutes ago. We had a story first thing this morning, and then I talked with Andy. And uh, yeah, there's some real a lot of really interesting detail in there. So right. yeah, you can see it on our website. Very good. Thank you, Julie. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. All right, back to the phones here to uh, Jim. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Brian. How are you this morning? Good. Time? I'm doing pretty well. It's a beautiful day, and I know we're short on time here, so I'll speed up. Uh, the gentleman that called a few minutes ago is exactly where I was at. I remember several times the Obama administration saying this was the new normal, uh, that we weren't going to grow. The economy couldn't grow any better than it was. Uh, he mocked the president, the current president <clears throat> several times by saying, Oh, what's he going to do? You know, wave a magic wand and, you know, make the economy better. Well, we've gone from new normal. To, uh, he's absolutely responsible for this growth. I think tax cuts and regulations backed off have done a lot more for growth. And yes, we did come out of a long period of no growth. So, uh, you know, some of it's natural, I'm sure. Hmm. And uh, the other, the gentleman touched on whether you're a constituent. If you didn't vote for him, I'll take that right to the presidency too. I didn't care for Mr. Obama's. Most of his policies, but he was still my president. I didn't run around saying he wasn't my president, and I supported him, or at least the office and a lot of his administration. And uh, a lot of the people that are anti Trump just can't bring themselves to do that. I've never seen it this crazy, I don't think. <laughs> All right. Well, we've never seen anybody like him in office either, so uh, it's a little, well, that's a little different. True too. So thank He's you, Jim. An agitator sometimes. Thank, mm. thank you, sir. Appreciate it. And then Bill. All right. Hi, Bill. Morning, Brian. Um, all I know about the uh, Serena Williams case is what, or story was what I heard on Rush. And I guess her behavior was pretty bad. She was throwing rackets and arguing, and she got smoked like 6'2", 6'3". The final wasn't even close. But I heard a, um, and then they treated the winner really bad, I guess. Made her cry during the presentation. This is what I heard on Rush. But I heard a CBS Sports Radio the other day. A guy comes out with his little <clears throat> speech. He said, uh, Serena Williams is being betrayed or uh, portrayed by some of the media as an angry black woman, and Serena Williams isn't an angry black woman. But to me, what he was saying was, you know, she is black, she's a woman, and she was angry. But he, I think he was confirming that the stereotype of an angry black woman, I guess, is what he was saying. It's true, but she's not one of them. So I thought what he said was actually more racist than just reporting the news the way it was. 
Well, I think that uh, what the, their point was, Billie Jean King talked about it, is that John McEnroe can throw rockets, or rackets and call the uh, umpire an idiot and all the stuff that he did. You know, are you kidding me is what he said all the time. And mm-hmm. her point was that I think the, the feeling is among some women at that level that the men can do that and that's considered, well, that's colorful. But when women do it, well, that's, you know, you can't do that. And that's what their complaint well, I mean, was, that the, the umpire was – I guess was sexist in his decision is what they were saying. But <laughs> you throw a racket, John Rackerow yeah. got penalized for that. Yeah, well, yeah, they said okay, that's that's you know it looks bad on TV or good on TV, depend. But there's still consequences to his action. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, well, I mean, really, if if she got penalized, I'm sure it was in the rules of sports. You know, yeah. if. Could you say that because she's a black woman, she gets to do things that other people don't get to well, do? I don't know about that. I think that her biggest complaint, was the really thing that, that ticked her off, and I think was that her coach gave her a thumbs up from the coaching box, and that was considered coaching. And so she got fined for that, and that's what I think set it off. But, uh, hey, Bill, i got to run, but thank you, sir. Okay. All right, a break and the news coming up here on DWS. was the number one song in the country on this day, Wilson Phillips, 1990. There you go, it's 28 years ago now. Is that right? 28 years ago. 1990 is 28 years ago. Is that right? I'm doing the math. No? Yeah. <laughs> Adam's looking at me funny. All right, Mike, how are you? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for okay. taking my call. No, no problem. Hey, before the break, you were talking about the uh, the incorrectly named Serena and the uh, and her tennis tantrum there on uh, over the weekend. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I know that uh, before we get too far away and, and think people start misunderstanding what was going on, he was not giving her a thumbs up. He was pushing his open hands forward, telling her to go to the net, which, that she, right? started, which she started doing after, after he signaled to her, and she won some points doing it. Now, you can be coached, but that's not in the middle of a game. So that was not the correct time for okay. him to be doing that. And, out, and you can say, well, you're just misunderstanding his hand motions. No, I'm not, because after the match is over, the uh, sideline, whatever, the sideline, sideline reporter goes to the box and before he and Serena have had a chance to you know get their stories straight the sideline reporter straight up asked him were you coaching her when he made that call and the coach said yeah we all do that so hmm. yes he was coaching her he admitted to it after the game was over and um Hmm. So yeah, there's there's no question what was going on, and she should have been penalized as such. You know, everybody does it, okay, but you got caught doing it, so you know that was the warning. Mm-hmm. And then I think what happened further then, I don't think Serena realized that that was a code violation, so that warning counted as her warning for code violations. So then when she threw her racket, she had already used her one warning, so now it was a point, 
and then she, you know, that obviously just sent her further into a spiral. But, um, you know, I really thought that her behavior was just disgraceful. And not only that, but then, you know, the, the, the president of the USTA comes out afterwards, Katrina Adams, I believe is her name, hmm. and she's praising Serena for, you know, for that behavior that, you know, contributed to Serena's defeat and diminished tennis as a sport, the sport that she is the president of the association for. And uh, I think her quote was, it's not the finish we were looking for today, but, you know, but Serena, you are a champion of all champions. This mama is a role model and respected by all. Well, she just got beat, like I said, because of her own behavior in a great part not just because of the, you know, that she wasn't a good enough player mm-hmm. compared to the her opponent, but because of her behavior. I mean, it was a meltdown. So, you know, for the USTA president to come out and say that after the match, I thought that was a terrible thing to do to the winner, Naomi Osaka, and I thought it was just, uh, you know, I can't, mm-hmm. I can't imagine that it's going to be very long before Katrina Adams gets fired here. What was the, the uh, tell me, what, what was the score of the match when all that happened? Was it close? You know, it was the, the well. Keep in mind that the first, the first set was a blowout. Right. Uh, uh, Naomi Osaka just handed it to her six-two, mm-hmm. and it was rapidly spinning out of control. Now, in the second set, Naomi Osaka was—I think she was clearly in control. And uh, when, when, uh, and I think it was like three-two or something like that. When all this started happening, Naomi Osaka was up, uh, and when it happened. Um, Serena had kind of come back and, and won Osaka's serve, which, you know, you're supposed to hold serve. Right. Well, Serena didn't, or Serena was able to beat Osaka mm-hmm. on her serve. Well, then Osaka comes back the very next while Serena's serving and beat her on her serve so that, you know, there was no ground made up. And then it's, you know, Osaka's turn to serve again. And so I think it was like 3-2 when all this started going down. And that's when Serena started complaining and to be honest, I kind of, when she started doing it, I was like, you know, this is like a boxer leaning on another boxer, you know, getting them in a bear hug. Mm. She's just stalling. She's just trying mm. to get some rest and kind of change the focus of this match and take some time to refocus because she's getting spanked. And so, and mm. then sure enough, it just spun out of control from there. Yeah. But the coach admitted to cheating. So this is all just nonsense. Everything okay. sense. Very good. Well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. All right. Yep. Three five six nine three nine seven. Emily Co- uh, Hoke is with us from the uh, Champaign Public Library. How are you? I'm doing well. Good. Thank you for inviting me in, Brian. Yeah, well, glad to be here. Want to have you on for a couple of minutes? You have uh, some authors coming in here as part of a series, right? At the library. Yes, we do. We have our um, fall rendition of our Greg author series at the library. We'll be having Colson Whitehead come in tomorrow, Thursday, September 7th, I'm sorry, September 13th at 7 o'clock in the evening. And then we have Louis Alberto Urea, who will be coming in on Saturday, September 29th at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. He's part of Pygmalion, actually. Mm-hmm. And then on October 18th, also a Thursday at 7 p.m. in the evening, we have Negi Okorafor coming in. And so these are uh, part of an author series. Do you do this certain times of the year? Do you do it year-round? Uh, tell we me do how that it, works. We do it year-round. Uh, we usually have an author. That our children's department usually has an author in the spring. This year we'll have Aaron Reynolds come in. 
Uh, last year we had Nikki Grimes come in. And then, of course, we have some authors in the fall as well. Mm-hmm. For instance, last year we had Jamie Ford and Gregory McGuire. Tell me about your first uh, author coming up, Colson Whitehead. It's the Underground Railroad, right? That's published just recently, right? Yes, it actually came out in um, 2016. It is a very exciting book because it received both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. Um, it is about, of course, slavery and the Underground Railroad, but it has a sort of magical aspect in the sense that the Underground Railroad is literally an Underground Railroad instead of a figurative. Really? Yes. So uh, in reality, not just the term where... Yeah, so it takes the um, the symbolism of an underground railroad as we talk about it in history, and it turns it into a literal um, mm-hmm. underground railroad. Mm-hmm. But it's still very much about slavery and the escape north and a lot of the brutalities that happened during that time. Mm-hmm. So it is a little bit of a hard read, but it is also a beautiful read. It is... Um, a book that Colson waited years and years to write until he thought that he could be the best writer that he could be to write this book. And that's why it's won so many awards and created so much acclaim. Yeah, it's been on the uh, New York Times bestselling uh, list. And as it was also on the Oprah Winfrey um, book club list. Hmm. And so uh, Colson will be there. Uh, that'll be tomorrow night at 7 p.m. How, how do these work? Do the authors come in? Do they talk about the book? Do they... Take questions? Exactly, yes. So the talk will start at 7 o'clock sharp, and then at the end there'll be a 15-minute Q&A in which audience members are invited to ask their questions of Colson about his writing and his works. And then there will be a signing to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, we have Jane Adams Books coming in, and they will be providing books for people to buy. And then there will be a signing table set up where you can get your book signed and a photo taken with the author. And uh, do they hold that in a certain room at the library? The actual talk will be on our second floor of the library. We are closing early tomorrow. We will be closing at 5 p.m. in order to uh, prepare for this wonderful event. And then the signing will be downstairs in the lobby after the talk. And this is at the Champaign Public Library. We know where that is, uh, near, not far from our building here, but uh, near downtown. Mm-hmm. And a uh, great location. Uh, the author coming up at the end of the month, uh, you mentioned him, uh, Pygmalion Celebration. Yes, that is Luis Alberto Urea. He is also a very exciting author. He actually lives up in Chicago, so he's a local author in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, he His most recent book is called The House of Broken Angels, which came out in March of this year. It's a family story. It just happens to be a Mexican-American family story um, in which the main character um, is about to die, but first he has to put his um, his grandmother, I'm sorry, his mother in the grave. And so it's his reflection on his life and his family and uh, a final celebration before mm-hmm. uh, that end of times. Um, He's been an author of, what, 17 books? 17 uh, books, no. yes. He's also has Into the Beautiful North, which came out in 2009, and that is actually a national endowment, Big Read, um, it is a really big deal book. It is a wonderful book. I'm reading it right now, actually. And part of it takes place here in Kankakee. Well, not here, but locally in Lo- Kankakee. Yeah, an hour away. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah, so do you try to get, uh, like the author you're talking about now, is that uh, adult books, kids' books? Do you try to get a mix? We really try to get a mix of different voices. Mm -hmm. Uh, We usually bring in a children's author, we bring in teen authors, and we bring in adult authors with also a range of um, voices that come from different parts of the world and different cultures. Emily Hoke is with us for a few more minutes from the Champaign Public Library talking about their author series. Uh, coming up with one tomorrow night, Colson Whitehead, The Underground Railroad, published in 2016, New York Times bestselling author. And that'll be at 7 o'clock uh, at the Champaign Public Library. Your last author has some University of Illinois connections. From she home, does. From Flossmore, right? Yeah. So uh, Negi Okorafor is a Nigerian-American author. She was actually raised here in Illinois. And then, of mm-hmm. course, she attended uh, University of Illinois for a while. Um, she has... She's amazing. She has the Nebula Award. She has the Hugo Award. She has a World Fantasy Award. She's a very big deal author. And uh, a book that I recently read by her is Binti, which is a science fiction book. Hmm. Um, It's very short. It's a novella. And it's about a woman who um, leaves her home to attend university. She's brilliant. And on her way to university, her spaceship is attacked by aliens. Mm -hmm. And how does she talk herself out of that? All of her books, all of Negi's books, have to do with strong, young, black women characters Mm. tackling um, very difficult tasks and being superheroes and saviors of humanity. So it's really wonderful voices. And then she draws strongly on her history of... um, Nigerian culture. Yeah, because her parents fled a civil war there, right? That's true. They did. So she draws on mythology and folklore from Nigeria. So it creates a very unique voice and a very interesting read. And also uh, what involved in uh, what is the Black Panther comic series? She is. She wrote um, Mm. quite a bit of a Black Panther comic series, which is just coming out later on this year. So you should look for that. Yeah. Well, those are some great authors. And uh, how do they find you? How do these do you reach out to the authors to have them come in? Or we do reach out to the authors and have them come in. That is exactly the the order of it. However, we always like to look for authors that have a lot of critical acclaim, that are winning awards, that have a tie to Illinois in some way, um, or of course that were recommended to us by our book clubs. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, Colson Whitehead was recommended by our Table Talk book club, which meets at. Um, which meets at the Douglas Branch Library on mm-hmm. six at six thirty every second Tuesday of the mm-hmm. month, and so they selected this author, and we are bringing him in to honor that book club. Well, so we'll look forward to each of these authors: Colson Whitehead, September thirteenth. That's tomorrow night at seven. Uh, our second author will be in September twenty ninth, and then October the eighteenth. And people can go to the library website and. And find more information, yes. And I'd also like to mention that you do not need a ticket to come and see these authors. That is a change from what we've been doing in the past. Mm. You are welcome to just come, and we will find a seat for you. Um, Or if there's no seat available, we'll see if we can find a space for you to stand in the back. So if you're interested, please stop by the library. Or call the library if you have any questions. Emily, thank you. Thank you. Good information. We appreciate it. Have fun with all that. Oh, I plan keep, to, keep and I posted. hope that you you can make it. Yeah, hopefully uh, we can, and uh, we invite everybody to come on out. We'll come back with more after this. He might be from New York, you think? <laughs> I think. All right, uh, quickly, Busey. 
September among the most popular months to get married. Before you walk down the aisle, Busey suggests a solid financial footing. Will you and your spouse-to-be uh, keep finances separate or combined? That's a big question. can crop up as an issue later. Couples that tackle money problems together and take responsibility will find their relationship is better for it. Share credit. Let your spouse know your credit situation. It's only fair, right, if you have a lot of debt. You kind of need to let them know that. Cupid Zero, develop a plan to shoot down existing debt, starting with the balances that carry the highest interest rates. And Sweet Savings, decide how much you want to save as a couple and withdraw the funds automatically from your paychecks. When you're just starting out or celebrating your milestone anniversary, Busey can provide an array of solutions tailored to meet your specific needs. Visit Busey.com or stop by one of their convenient locations today. Busey Investment Services. Thanks to all of our guests today, popped in and out, all of you for listening and for being a part of our show today. We really appreciate it. We're back uh, tomorrow. Greg Solier in the first hour. Talk about the big hurricane and the fall forecast here for our farmers as well. All of that tomorrow. WDWS Champaign-Urbana. Stay tuned.